Turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Daniel. I'm going to preach this morning from Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter so we can see the full story and the events that take place. Page 739 in your pew Bible if you'd like to look there. This is Daniel 3. Let's give attention to God's holy word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the presence of in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music all the peoples nations languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that king nebuchadnezzar had set up therefore at that time certain chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the jews they declared to king nebuchadnezzar o king live forever you o king have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn pipe lyre trigon harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom you serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face 
was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, the furnace overheated The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into their fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fire furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All men are like grass and their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come to this passage as weak men and women who read a passage like this and say, oh, if we had that sort of faith. Lord, we're reminded this morning that we do have the same God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you, as you ruled then, are ruling now. And as you are perfect in your provisions then, you are perfect in your provisions now. And so with great confidence, I and all my friends here come before your word to hear from you. Teach us this morning for the glory of Christ. Amen. So my son Andrew and I have been reading the the book of Daniel for the last several weeks. And as I was praying about preaching today while Robert was gone, I I decided to ask Andrew, Andrew, what do you think I should preach on? And he said, Dad, you got to preach on Daniel 3. I said, okay, son, I'm going to preach on Daniel 3. The reason we started reading this book several weeks ago was because Andrew and, and me as his father are asking God for wisdom as we walk through these delicate teenage years and this culture and this day and time. 
the pressures and temptations, we decided we would read this book and ask God for help in our day and time to deal with many of the same cultural pressures that we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego dealing with in Daniel's day. And I know this is relevant for each of you because I've had conversations with dozens of you facing these same temptations, either with a child or with your own heart. And so we're faced with these times wanting to stand for our faith. And so, as Robert has done the last few years, kids, your word for today is stand. Every time I say the word stand, you mark it down, and we'll see uh, who gets it right. Mark's keeping score. Got it. Stand is your word. So Daniel chapter 3 obviously falls into the uh, larger narrative of the scriptures and in the larger narrative of the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel was written in the 6th century BC, which means the people of God were in exile. They had been taken away by the uh, narcissistic and oppressive ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, and the kingdom of Babylon, the Chaldean people. The opening chapter of Daniel 1 tells us that as King Nebuchadnezzar moved throughout uh, Israel and had brought them into captivity, he took for himself the sharpest men and women from the people of Israel and brought them into his inner courts. And what he began to do was indoctrinate them religiously to the Chaldean way of life, the way of eating, the way of thinking, the way of reading. And you can see in Daniel 1, Daniel takes an early stand as a uh, leader in the Chaldean courts by saying to a other leader, hey, don't give us the food or the books or the teachings of Nebuchadnezzar. Let us do what we are called to do by our God and trust me that we'll stand as uh, strong men and women before King Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the leader of the Chaldean says, you're putting my life at risk and your own life at risk for me to do that. Daniel says, trust me as I trust my God. And sure enough, he uh, stands before King Nebuchadnezzar, not have read his books, not have eaten his food, not have gone through his indoctrination, and Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. No doubt, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing there with Daniel and saw his stand in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so here in chapter 3, we see their opportunity to stand. So this morning, I want us to see three things. An imposing idol, an impossible choice, and an immovable faith. So let's, let's take a look first at an imposing idol. Look back again at verse 1 and 2. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dara in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image. Scholars have debated what this image was. And most agree that based on chapter two, which was a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had about a kingdom rising up and ruling all kingdoms, Daniel interprets that kingdom and actually says to him, it's the kingdom of God, but Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's his kingdom. So in chapter 3, he erects a statue of himself to call all the nations, all the satraps, all the governors, all the languages, all the counselors, come and worship him. He was the great king. 
He was going to be the kingdom above all kingdoms. So he erects a 90 foot, 90 wide, 90 foot wide, 9 foot wide statue of himself. And then calls the known world to come and bow down to him. The size of the image and the size of the crowd. Did you notice twice? You know, in, in, in Hebrew writing, whenever there's a, a desire to emphasize something, it is repeated. So the writer of Daniel repeats who's present and then the type instruments that are there. The point being, this was a grand occasion. Not only was the statue imposing, but the environment for which the statue was raised up was imposing. This was meant to be a huge event of pride and exaltation for Nebuchadnezzar. But the idol was imposing in another way as well. The punishment for not bowing was death. This idol of Nebuchadnezzar and his subsequent command would impose upon the personal rights of the people there. If you do not bow, you will die. This is the way all of our idols treat us. Our idols are imposing. They loom large in our hearts and our minds. They seem to dominate the landscape of our lives and the lives of others. But our idols also tend to impose themselves on our wills, forcing us oftentimes into perilous situations if we don't obey them. Let me give you some examples. When we make something our idol, it imposes itself on us. If I make money my idol, it will impose itself on my heart, my mind, my anxiety, my fear. I will do everything I can do to make more money, work more hours, lose more sleep, worrying and plotting about it. Money will impose itself on me. If I make people pleasing my idol, people will impose on my life in ways that make me fear them or envy them. I will use social media and other things to satisfy this people-pleasing gauge. I'll have to maintain an image that proves that people, I'm a certain way. If my idol is my children, my children impose stress and fear and anger and manipulation. Comparison will dominate my relationship with other parents. My kids will set up, but will be set up to prove that I am a good or bad parent based on how they do on the field, how they do in their instrument, how they do on their SAT score, what scholarships they get, what their behavior is. If your idol is technology, it will make you anxious when the battery goes dead and when you're away from it for a long time. It will make you sneak and hide and do the flip thing up so nobody knows what you're seeing. We'll be checking it compulsively to see if we missed something. Can't you see how idols impose themselves on you? So what's the diagnostic question that you can ask to determine whether an idol is imposing its way on you? How do you respond when the idol disappoints? When it doesn't satisfy? Do you respond with anger? Do you lash out? Do you blame? Do you respond with altering moods? Do you have increased anxiety? Do you get busy trying to fix it? This idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up was just like the idols we set up. They are imposing. Because of this, we oftentimes are met with what seems to be impossible choices in the shadow of an imposing idol. Let's look, secondly, at the impossible choice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face. Look at Daniel 3, 13 through 16. It says that Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, 
Notice the mood change there. The idol does not get worshipped. And so anger and rage start coming. Commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of all these instruments that we've seen, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is an impossible choice, isn't it? If they don't bow to the king's statue, they will be killed. If they do bow to the statue, they have denied their God. Now stated like that, it seems like this situation is simple. Don't deny your God. But in the face of life and death, it seems impossible. Last Sunday, uh, Andrew and I went with uh, Kent Ratajkowski and Clark Schumann, and we went and saw the new movie out called Free Solo. It's about the climber, um, Alex Honnold, who ascended the, uh, the largest granite face, uh, I guess in the United States, something like that, 3,500 feet, called El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. And he did it with no ropes. <laughs> Nothing anchoring him to this wall. Straight up, 3,500 feet for four hours with a camera crew filming every part of it. And in, 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 in every moment of the movie, you're just gripped by this absurdity of this, uh, this endeavor and the awe-inspiring nature of human achievement. It's just incredible. But, but the, 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 the film writers did an amazing job of, of showing you that no decision along that route was a small one. Every decision was life and death. And in fact, in one moment, moment he's on what is called the boulder problem. <laughs> Interesting, you know, you're, 40, you're 1,400 feet up on this thing and you got a boulder problem. Like, okay. But he's got this handhold where he's got his thumb and his feet are just kind of pressed up against it. And his thumb is the only thing securing him to the wall. And he has to take his two fingers and put them in and then replace this thumb and kick the wall next to him and go over. Did you like that? Got it sitting videoed. It's, it's insane. But what held their between life and death was his thumb. And I couldn't help but think about this story. Because I often wonder when it comes to issues of faith, which is harder to face? Death by a fiery furnace for your faith or death by a thousand small matches burning away at you and your whole faith? Which is harder? If today... If you had to make the choice between dying for that lustful look on your computer or denying your lust, I think you would choose deny my lust. If you had to make a choice today between someone shooting you in the head for making a greedy purchase or denying your greed, I'll deny my greed today. But sadly, we're not faced with such clear life and death situations. What if you denied your lust? What if denying your lust meant something less than physical death or greater than physical death? It would mean that you were not going to die, but your soul would die. 
Your trust in people would die. Your confidence in grace would die. Your perspective about men and women would die. You see, what might be worse is a slow burn that is generational, methodical. I sincerely think that in our day and time, we are faced with these fiery furnace choices, but they're not as clear as a seven times hot inferno. This has way more to do with the issues of whether we get to pray in our schools or whether our educational systems are secularized or the atrocious sexual perversions invading our computers and telling them these things are for sure problems and they are symptoms. But the slow burn of our faith is that in so many ways we have developed a way of life that is virtually devoid of need for God. We have plenty of financial safeguards so that we don't have to trust God for our daily bread. We have plenty of bodily safeguards from seat belts to medical development so we don't have to trust God for our physical well-being. When faced with this type impossible situation, what would, what would you be tempted to do? Several things that I read about and even thought about. Perhaps we could read these into this story. Take situational ethics. Oh, it'll be all right to bow just this once. God would not want them to die. It's kind of silly. They could just bow real quick and it'd be okay. Situational ethics, right? What about cultural ethics? Listen, the Babylonians don't get our faith. We don't want to offend them and risk hurting our witness. So we'll bow now so they'll listen to us later. This is cultural ethics. Or what about popularity ethics? Everybody's doing it. Surely I'm not required to stand out that much in my culture. I don't want to be weird. Easy grace ethics. God is forgiving. I'll bow now and then ask for forgiveness later. Or even silent ethics. I'm going to kneel on the outside. That's to not going to make a scene, but inside I'll be worshiping the true God in my heart. I'll tie my shoe or something. Sadly, I see myself in all of those when faced with an imposing idol. So what are some diagnostic questions that I ask myself? When I'm faced with some of these idols, I ask myself, am I operating out of fear? I fill in the blank. If I were to do this, I'm afraid I might fill in the blank. You might need to take a risk on God. Second one I ask is, am I at risk of bearing false witness? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know you do what your heart desires, right? Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so if you say, I'm a believer in Almighty God and yet have a life that looks strangely undependent on him, I might be in danger of bearing false witness. But this one has been a new one for me over the last few years. And it comes from James 4. Who am I trying to be friends with? James 4, 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's a great question when you're faced with an impossible choice. Who am I actually trying to be friends with? Friends, God is a superior friend. So what we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is an unequivocal stand in the face of this impossible choice, which leads us lastly to their immovable faith. Look at chapter 3, verse 16 and 18. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, (laughs) be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. We see an unbelievable confidence and an unbelievable submission here. The confidence, my God can keep us out of the fiery furnace, but make no mistake, he will deliver us out of your hand. Did you notice that little slight there of of the text? He's able to keep us out of the fiery furnace, but either way, he's going to deliver us out of your hand because we'll die, won't be around you anymore. God's going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't keep us out of the fiery furnace, let it be known, we're not going to serve you. We're not going to bow down to you. An unbelievable submission. Kent Hughes says, faith is not a rabbit's foot and God is not a genie who is bound to do for us what we want. Faith is submitting to the Father's will even and especially when it's contrary to your will. These two guys did not know what the final outcome would be of this impossible choice. And neither did Nebuchadnezzar. Notice what happens in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth, it's like a son of God. Who is this fourth person in the fire with them? It is none other than the son of God himself. Yes, Jesus was in the fire with them. Yes, Jesus protected them. Yes, Jesus brought them out. And yes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is with you in whatever fiery ordeal you encounter. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus is the yes when you stand in homage to him. Many of you know Brian Chapel, and Brian Chapel's a dear pastor friend of this church. He's a former president of Covenant Seminary. He's current pastor in Peoria, Illinois. He likes to tell a story that I'll just sort of read to you. So there was a young man who was a minor, and he was injured early in his life. His injuries were so severe that it left him paralyzed. He was restricted to a bed and a wheelchair his whole life, from a very young age to his whole life. He watched all of his friends grow up, go on to raise families and have prosperous jobs and lead wonderful lives. All the while, his body withered away and his life withered away. One day, an eager and zealous young boy came to the older man when he was older and said, I heard that you believe in God and claim that God loves you. How can you believe such a thing after all that you have been through? The old miner answered, yes. It's true that Satan comes calling on me and begins to accuse me and point out all the trauma and tragedies of my life. He also points out all the good things I've missed out in this life because of my injuries. Each time Satan comes, he says, does Jesus really love you? One time Satan came to me and he pointed out the grandchild of one of my best friends. And he waited there till my Face was full of regret and a tear of sorrow filled my eyes. And then he said again, does Jesus love you? 
The young boy was growing angry and anxious and said, what do you have to say to all this? And the old miner said, each time I take Satan by the hand and I lead him in my mind to a hill called Calvary and I point to the tortured man hanging there with a crown of thorns, nail on his hands, spear in his side and say, Satan, you tell me, does Jesus love me? Folks, Calvary is the measure of God's love for us. The submission of Jesus on the cross gives us the confidence to live and to die whatever God's will is for our lives. If we die, we die to the Lord. If we live, we live to the Lord. Jesus is with us through the fiery ordeals we face day in and day out. How do you know this? (laughs) He himself went through the ultimate fiery furnace, the judgment of his father. And Jesus showed us perfect confidence and perfect submission. What are the diagnostic questions you can ask here about having an immovable faith? The first and most obvious that we all need to deal with, am I this day trusting in Jesus for my salvation? Some of you have been coming to church for a long time, maybe even 50 and 60 years, and you do not know what it means to trust Jesus. We pray today you would find yourself standing with him alone. As everyone else bows to the other gods of the world, you stand, Jesus. But for the rest of us, are you this day doing all you can to prepare yourself to trust Jesus on that day? When the fiery ordeal comes. Listen, I played a lot of sports in my world. And my coaches used to always say, you play like you practice. Don't think you're going to be ready for the big game if you've goofed off in practice. Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you dealing with the small sins and submission to brothers and sisters? I'll never forget when I first became a Christian... So many struggles as a young, young man in the faith in college. And I decided to see if God could rescue me from some of these. And I didn't know how to deal with the monumental things I was dealing with. So I, I decided to try something, right? You just, I'm just trying, Lord. I'm trying to follow you. I want to take steps of faith. And I read all these passages. And, and so I loved Milky Way, dark candy bars and cherry Coke. I loved them. And there was a speedway right next to my apartment, so I'd come out of basketball practice, and I'd zip in the speedway, and I'd get a cherry Coke and a Milky Way dark every day, and I was like, I just loved them. And I thought one day, I wonder if I can deny my body Milky Way dark candy bars and cherry Cokes. It's like ridiculous, right? But what I was after was training this body and this mind to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So I said no to Milky Way darks and cherry Coke. And folks, that little step of faith, God did something powerful in me. I did begin to learn to say no to the bigger temptations that weren't just sugar and caffeine. And even to this day, I'm looking for those areas of things that I need to say no to. Not because they in themselves are evil or wrong, but because I want to have a heart ready to stand for Jesus in the day of fire. And so friends, today, Will you stand in the shadow of your imposing idol and say, my God is able to save me 
from your imposing presence? Will you stand in the face of impossible choices and say, God is able to deliver me from your threats and implications? And today, will you stand in the presence of your Savior and say, my God is my confidence and I am submitted to his will, whatever that might be. And by God's grace, we will stand. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need your help. Our knees are too weak, our hands are too frail, our minds are too distracted. Our hearts are full of wickedness. We are not able to stand on our own. Help us to stand. Help us to stand in the face of the idols of our life. Help us to stand when the choices seem impossible. And help us to stand with a faith that is immovable on this earth. You have said, without faith, it is impossible to please you. And so, Lord, we stand this morning trusting in your full submission on the cross as our confidence that you are yes and you are true. As we come to this table, remind us that you indeed are our perfect Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.